The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Merry Christmas. Blessed New Year well, to you. Thank you, Tom. Blessed Christmas time. Blessed coming year to you, too. Thank you, Father. It's good to see you. Father, we have received an awful lot of emails recently, so I would like to get into some of those. Begin with one here concerning Vatican I. This viewer asks if Vatican I was merely prorogued and not officially closed. Did ecclesiastical authority officially close Vatican I before convening Vatican II? If they did not, is Vatican I still just a prorogued council awaiting reopening at some future time? If Vatican I is merely, merely prorogued, does that not mean that Vatican II could not, in fact, be legally convened unless all its issuances are void of initio. Further, if Roncalli was not a true pope, was Vatican II not convened by a supreme pontiff, and therefore all its dec declarations and decrees null and void? Well, there are a series of questions here, obviously, right? Uh, my best now information is that Vatican I was never formally closed. <clears throat> so that was one of the objections that was made to John the Twenty Third when he proposed calling a council. Right? He talked about calling a council, and then at one point uh, he said that he was uh, inspired to call a council. Okay, uh, so his story evolved, shall we say? Right. Um, but uh, one of the cardinals, I understand, objected, well, you can't call a Vatican II because Vatican I is still technically speaking. In effect, it's, you know, and, um, uh, but John XXIII ignored that. So Vatican, Vatican uh, I, to the best of my knowledge, was never uh, formally closed. And um, uh, it's kind of an interesting scenario because, uh, who is it? Uh, uh, well, Benedict Ratzinger, right, um, said that Vatican II was like the, was the French Revolution in the Church, right, and was the anti-Vatican I, is what Vatican II has the reputation of. Okay, there were those who uh, actually took part in it, who considered it to be the re repudiation of Vatican I's. So, you know, if they had a council, opened it, held it, closed it, and then opened another council as an anti-council and went through the process of opening, you know, holding the sessions and closing it. That would be one thing, but if they opened Vatican I, and they had the sessions of Vatican I, and never closed it, and a century later, they, they, they essentially continued it with, with, the, like a, with a big eraser to basically erase it, right? That would be very ironic. That would be the height of irony, right? But essentially, that's what they did. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> you know, the question is, would Vatican II have had, would, had, had any canonical status at all in the church? You know, well, 
Um, if there were true popes calling the uh, council and overseeing the council and ratifying the acts of the council, um, then they would have the authority to do that, right? Um, so, um, you know, that's a big if, though, because he goes on to question whether or not John the Twenty-Third was a, an honest-to-goodness vicar of Christ on earth, a Roman pontiff, and that is uh, highly disputed, right? It's disputed whether he had the faith or not. Right? He was a great friend of Masons, <clears throat> great friend of socialists, a, a great friend of communists. And um, he, in his own way, was every bit as um, great a friend of Masons and communist socialists as Francis is right now, curiously enough. <clears throat> Just that Francis is so very blatant about it, you know. But um, obviously, if if John the Twenty Third was not really a Roman Pontiff, he was, for whatever reason, right? Um, then any council he called would be null and void from the very beginning. Right? Now, one might also argue: well, suppose he suppose he was <clears throat> a valid Roman Pontiff. Um, but he was calling an ecumenical council for a non-traditional reason. reason. He said that, that this council would not discuss matters of doctrine. <clears throat> it would be a pastoral council simply concerning itself with pastoral methods, okay? Well, you know, again, one could argue would that really constitute the very nature or character of an ecumenical council. Because all of, the, all of the ecumenical councils of the church were called to address matters of doctrine and to dogmatically uh, lay down the, the church's true faith, right? So if, if John the Twenty-Third called the council and stipulated that it was uniquely for pastoral reasons, and then the council deviated from that and began to introduce um, <clears throat> opening to, to new doctrines, anti-Catholic doctrines, uh, you know, one, one could argue, one could argue about that from many, many points of view as far as Vatican II goes, because it was such an anomaly in the history of the church, right? It was a revolution. Um, uh, Ratzinger got it right. He understood it was a revolution, Vatican II. And that's why they want Francis, uh, uh, right now to finish the revolution. That's why they've got to protect him from, uh, all of the, all of those who would question him, anyone who would, who would interfere with his, with his work of completing the nefarious work of the council to finish off the Catholic Church as an institution. Um, so anyway, I mean, the, the, the questions the gentleman is asking are not idle questions. They require sure. serious answers, obviously, that, you know, we can't answer them in a matter of uh, uh, 25 words or less, or even 2,500 words or less right now. But they're questions worth asking. And, um, you know, the, the, the church has had in, in her past history uh, uh, examples of councils that met that were repudiated. But as far as an ecumenical council of the, of the, Catholic, of the Catholic Church, right, mm -hmm. um, uh, called by a, a, a reigning Roman pontiff and gathering the bishops of the world, I don't know there's an example of an ecumenical council of the church duly summoned 
and uh, and seated, right, mm -hmm. and in session, that was actually ever repudiated by the church. This is this is why people are laboring over this matter of Vatican II. Sure. You know? okay. But uh, nonetheless, even those. Even, even those who feel compelled to recognize it admit that there was something highly flawed about it. And, um, you know, those who follow the, um, the progress, as it were, of the Council, you know, can see it was very questionable that the Holy Ghost was guiding the proceedings here because the modernists were actually in charge. The modernists had hijacked the Council from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and if you read St. Pius X's work on the, the condemning the errors of the modernists, you see that these men uh, do not have the Catholic faith, do not uh, uh, profess the Catholic faith. They have principles that are absolutely antithetical to the Catholic faith, faith and that are deadly to the Catholic faith. So ever since Vatican II, even during Vatican II, we see it was already working to dissolve the faith of the people. Right. And so we see the damage it has been doing ever since. You know? Sure. So. Okay. Well, let's move on then. Father, uh, we have another email here from a viewer who says, thank you for the program. I find the information and insight very informative. They say that they're often challenged with responses regarding changes that have occurred prior to Vatican II, uh, in particular, this question of priestly marriage. So I say, I was told about a time when priests were allowed to be married. When was this allowed, and why the change, and under what authority was this change made? Well, uh, Catholic priests to this day are allowed to marry in uh, those in the Eastern Rite. Right. Okay, uh, you have a multiple Eastern rites of the Church. Okay, I mean you have the Maronite Rite, and then the, the uh, uh, well, basically. Uh, you know, the, the rites following that of St. John Chrysostom, that, that all derive from the Mass of St. John Chrysostom, as it's called, and so on. Uh, so you have a multiplicity of Eastern rites, and the priests who belong to the Eastern rites can marry, okay? But there are restrictions whereby uh, they, if they marry, they cannot become bishops, okay? They uh, remain priests. They cannot be elevated to the episcopacy. Now, um, in the West, uh, initially, priests were allowed to marry, but the Roman pontiffs, the, the Catholic popes, determined that priests in the, in the Roman Rite would not marry. Not only in the, in the Roman Rite, but in the Latin Rite. I mean, because there, there, there was the Serum Rite, and there were, there were Gallican Rites, and they, they were in Latin, they were all in Latin. So it wasn't just the Roman Rite. Um, but in, in the, the Latin language speaking, the Latin Roman, uh, Roman Catholic Church, right, uh, would not have married clergy. And um, it's understandable, actually, why the Eastern Rites were exempt from that, because it was so, um, they were fiercely protective of the status quo. <clears throat> I mean, they, they were fighting... Uh, for their idea of when Easter should be celebrated, right? Um, contrary to to Rome and the uh, the Latin Rite, uh, they had various things that they were very very determined to protect, and so 
the Pope decided that it was, I, mean, I can't tell you which Pope either, but I uh, could easily examine that, <laughs> looked up, could look that up and tell you, but uh, it was decided not to impinge upon that because <clears throat> there would be a crisis, right? Um, remember that in the year 1054, the Eastern Church under Constantinople broke away from the, the, the Catholic Church, right? And the popes saw the precariousness of the situation long before that. This situation had endured here. In nine, 950, the, there was a schism under Photius, right, who, who usurped the, the uh, patriarchate of Constantinople. Before that, there were issues with the Eastern Church. The Eastern Church always had the tendency to... Um, to consider itself something somewhat apart, superior, right? As Constantinople considered itself apart and superior to Rome. And so the popes saw the necessity of handling this very, very delicately. Um, what happened in 1054 with the Great Eastern Schism showed the wisdom of the popes throughout all those thousand years in dealing with the situation very, very delicately. Um, because, um, especially for the, the, you know, the, since Constantine moved the capital of the empire to Constantinople, uh, there was a, a heavy political influence on the church in the East that tied itself to the the political presence of the empire and the and the uh, worldly powers of the empire, and um, so the popes had to deal with that that reality. Okay, so when they uh, proscribed marriage for the clergy for the priests uh, in the West, they they knew not to. Um, not to tangle with the tradition in the East. Uh, why, why was it changed in the West? Well, I, I think it's pretty obvious. Um, well, but obviously it's not obvious. <laughs> You'll ask, okay. Um, I guess it would be obvious to a priest. Um, obvious to priests on both sides of the issue. To the married priest of the East, of the and to the unmarried priests in the West, I think both of them would, would see the rationale behind it. First of all, our Lord was not married. All right, the priest is an altar Christus. His role is to serve the church. In a sense, he's married to the church, okay? And uh, that is the bride of Christ. And so the priest as an altar Christus recognizes that too. That is his family. Uh, his parish is his family. And he must take care of that uh, with all of his powers, and it requires all of his powers. He can't be divided. Um, when Christ called the apostles, he called them. He called Peter away from home, right. called him away from from family. And um, the um, the necessity of uh, being free for the priest to serve the church, serving our Lord, is the primary reason for priests not marrying in the West, okay? Uh, practical reasons, I think one could even see 
Protestant ministers, married Protestant ministers, who do not have one one hundredth of the responsibility of a Catholic priest, uh, and the difficulties they have in taking care of families, their own personal families, and the people that they're actually hired. It's their job. They're hired by some uh, body of, uh, you know, governing the church uh, to serve. And and even there, I mean, even with that relationship, uh, they have a very different relationship of a priest with his congregation and a Protestant minister who, who is basically just a glorified member of his congregation. Uh, he doesn't represent Christ, he represents the congregation, is what he really represents. And um, the difficulties that they have in dealing with, well, their wives, who demand their attention, and rightly so, right? Um, who know what's going on, right? I mean, these ministers do not hear confessions, okay? But they are privy to things going on among the people in their parish, but they're also married to a woman who uh, can't help but, but be also privy to things, private matters that are going on. So um, it's hard not to have uh, such a wife being embroiled in the, some say, sensitive matters, even a Protestant minister. And then you've got the children, some of whom uh, wind up uh, on drugs, in jail, committing crimes, and you've got ministers then uh, who are divorced, right? Remarried, right? You bring that, that, whole, that whole soap opera drama with you. And um, Tom, I can't, I can't just disassociate all of this from what's going on in the Novus Ordo Church right now and the new so-called Catholic Church right now with the drama that's going on in the new church. I mean, they brought in all of this soap opera drama into the Novus Ordo. And um, the, um, we see the consequences are very toxic, uh, deadly. Um, so the, the church in the West was certainly very, very, very prudent in requiring of those who wanted to be her priests that they, that they be free from all of that engagement, right? You know, St. Paul said it very well when he said, when a man is married, he's concerned about pleasing his wife. And when he's not married, he's preoccupied with, with serving Christ. No one could say it better than that, that this is what must distinguish the priest. Sure. So, uh, I mean, you have the examples of married Protestant ministers, and now you have the examples of these so-called priests of the, of the day that are all involved in, in all, this, um, all this stuff. And uh, they, they are men of the world, as is Francis, man of the world. Father, do you think that it's uh, ironic at all that, you know, there's this big push now in the Novosaurus Church to try and have married <clears throat> clergyman, and one of the justifications for that has been um, kind of this invocation of tradition, where Francis said, has talked about this. In the traditional church, there has been this, uh, there were traditionally married priests and all of this, so he's attempting to use uh, what he calls tradition 
of married priest as a justification to have married priest now. Do you see any kind of... It's so ironic that Francis starts invoking tradition to get what he wants. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, you'd think he'd be the last person on the face of the earth to dare <laughs> invoke tradition. Yeah. But you know what that reminds me of, Tom? It reminds me of Nancy Pelosi invoking, uh, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas' teaching on insolvent <laughs> to justify abortion. It is so phony. It, it is so uh, dishonest. Uh, for her to do that, you know. Um, but it, it is also dishonest of Francis to try to make any case on the basis of tradition. The church saw the need to make this change for the, for the, for the betterment. The changes that Francis had brought in, and, and, and all of them since Vatican II, have just been deadly for the church. And um, so, you know, it's like also the, the matter of hand communion. They said, well, originally, you know, the church was giving hand communion, so let's go back to that primitive practice. Sure. And, uh, well, we, we see what they've done, and we see why the church changed that practice and gave up hand communion and, and adopted the practice of the priest placing the host on the tongue because uh, just of the dangers of irreverence and sacrilege and all the rest, uh, that the church saw was was a, a, a real inseparable and inherent in the whole idea of just handing out those. Yeah. So um, now Francis is very selective in his invocation of tradition, uh, all to serve the modernist revolution. <laughs> That's right. Um, again, it's not honest. True. All right, well, let's change gears here. Father, this viewer asks if you are aware of a cleansing procedure or blessing that negates negative spiritual impact if there is any Masonic history within a family. Well, there are exorcisms. If we're talking about a diabolical influence, then we're talking about exorcism, okay? I mean, to... Um, Invoke God's blessing on someone is certainly, you know, a very powerful, powerful thing. But if we're talking about diabolical influence, the church uses exorcisms to command the devil to recede, to, to back off, leave alone, right? Um, so, yes, I mean, if, if the question is, are there blessings for that? As I say... Um, then um, uh, there, there certainly are, are blessings of all kinds in the church. And a blessing given to something would, would certainly help to relieve that influence. But um, you'll find in the church's ritual, um, when she's going to bless, when the church is going to bless something, <clears throat> um, such as holy water, or oil, she will start with a, an exorcism and then proceed to the blessing. So she'll profit, pro, she will provide to, for the expulsion of any evil presence. And after that, will then give the blessing as, as, with, as with Holy Water. So I would suggest, uh, again, I, I don't have a background on that question, but I would just say that if somebody has something in the family that is um, gives them uh, fear of some kind of dark influence or evil influence, 
They might want to start with uh, the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel and um, uh, Holy Water, right? Um, St. <clears throat> Benedict Medal, very powerful against satanic influence. But uh, if there's anything manifesting itself, <clears throat> then I think they need to have a traditional Catholic priest who's validly ordained, a real traditional Catholic priest, <clears throat> and come by and um, uh, you know, offer some prayers. It, without knowing the specifics, it's a little hard to say exactly what the remedy should be, though. Would the church have any kind of special exorcism for a mason who wanted to convert to Catholicism? Or if they were being baptized, would that exorcism just be included in the baptism? Well, if a mason were to return to the church, you see, when someone joins, a Catholic, when a baptized Catholic joins the masons, that person is automatically excommunicated from the church, right? Okay. And to return to the church and the practice of the faith, there are certain things prescribed for, for someone to be reconciled to the faith. Um, but that doesn't necessarily include exorcism. Okay. And what if they were not baptized? Well, then they wouldn't be Catholics. Right. So they would be excommunicated, right? Then the question, they would have to leave the Masons and then be, receive a course in Catholic instruction and decide whether, well, first of all, they'd have to learn what the teach, church teaches. They then have to decide if they truly believe that the church te teaching is true. Then they would have to decide if they're willing to live up to it. And then they could be baptized okay. and made a Catholic. Okay. And of course, in the baptismal ceremony itself, there are exorcisms. Right, right. Okay. Right. But reconciling a, a following <clears throat> Catholic who became a Mason and is returning to the church, I, I don't know that there are, uh, I'm not aware of, you know, specific prayers of exorcism that would be sent over that sure. individual. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Then next email, Father, this viewer would like to know how you feel about President Trump and the signing of the pact Francis has for Climate Sunday Law. That's a very good question, I think. This Climate Sunday Law uh, is a little bit puzzling. Um, evidently, and I say evidently because I'm no... Uh, you know, expert on the subject, I hardly know anything about this at all. I've never heard the, the term before until tonight. But evidently, there's a move afoot to introduce a um, Sunday rest and to enforce it by law internationally. That um, there be an international law imposed that would require everyone to cease production on Sunday. Wow. And this would include supposedly not only Sundays, you know, about 52, 53 Sundays a year, but also certain holidays, not holy days, but holidays. Um, now, when you talk about international law, you're talking about something that, would, if it has the force of law, then it could be punished. It would have, uh, there'd be police authority to enforce it, right? And I don't know what that enforcement authority would be now, except the United Nations. I mean, the, uh, Francis and, uh, and Benedict and John Paul II and, and so on, they've all called for an international organization to police the economies of the world, right? right. They want a global economy. And um, so this idea of having an international law that would be controlled by a central body that would actually have enforcement powers 
Um, and they've actually, they've actually not only called for a body um, to govern the economy, but they actually have said, I mean, these modernist popes have said uh, that it, this body had to have police power to enforce, to force nations to comply. I mean, this is the most blatant uh, demand for one world government that anyone has ever made. So, um, but I guess this is part of it now, based on climate change. The idea is that we've got to shut down production in order to protect the environment. And if they added together their Sundays and their holidays, it would be about 70 days a year which supposedly is about 20% of the, of the year itself, which goes along with the so-called Paris Accord, which required for reducing production by 20%. So this is supposedly the way they're going to bring this in. And they're going to bring it in, and again, under a veneer of religion. Now, you know, there are those who are proposing this as though it were sort of like, uh, sort of compatible with the Sabbath rest, okay? Um, uh, in this case, not the Sabbath, which is a Saturday, okay, but Sunday for Christians, okay? They, they would recognize that Sundays are days of rest, but notice, not for God, for the climate, for mankind, for this world entirely. Absolutely not as a matter of worship or homage to God or recognition of his creation of the world, but actually a, a, something that would exclude the idea of God. And that we're going to invoke this rest purely for the sake of the climate of the planet. Okay. Talking about a bald-faced substitution of the, the false gods of this world. Uh, according, I mean, this is, they're appealing to Francis's Laudato Si, you know, about, about the, the climate. And now we have to bow down before the climate. Um, so, the, again, we're, we're seeing this, this shift of, try, uh, of trying to basically push God and completely out of the picture and replace him with the, the false gods of the modernists and the false gods of this world. Um, I consider this to be just, again, a, 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 an illustration, actually an instance of apostasy. And it sounds like the perfect introduction for the Antichrist. You know, you just but it sounds like a perfect introduction for the Antichrist. You talk about the one world government, yeah. the one world police force, yeah. and, uh, you know, a substitution. Yeah. What is that? But, but the, the word substitution is very important that you use there. Because the Antichrist is not going to come and just say, well, let's get rid of that and just start a whole new religion. Yeah. He's going to actually substitute point by point, <clears throat> level by level, sacrament by sacrament, right. something of this world to destroy what Christ himself established. You're right. Wow. And so, you know, when you use the word substitution, Tom, I think you uh, are inspired <laughs> to see the, uh, the point of it all. This is a prime example of that substitution. So you wouldn't sign the pact, Father? You wouldn't sign the pact? Uh, I would not have signed the pact of the catacombs, and I will not sign the pact of the climate either. Um, in fact, I would condemn it. You know, Francis did sign, I understand, the United Nations uh, Climate Pact, 
Um, and we were all told, uh, the world was told, this is not really enforceable, don't worry, it's just basically um, a statement of a general consensus among the nations. Actually, you read the terms of that agreement. And it is, it, it does state very clearly that this is, this is uh, enforceable by international law. The signatories are putting themselves, um, making themselves subject to international law on this, on this matter. I don't think Donald Trump signed that. I don't think he signed that, that agreement for that reason. Francis did, though. Basically, uh, I guess in his mind, putting the entire New Order Church on track to uh, just submit to any international agreements that the modernists and the revolutionaries, the leftists, the one-worlders are going to uh, make up. Wow. Um, so remember, you know, as I, as I mentioned, I mean, uh, Francis and Benedict and John Paul and before them, you know, Paul VI, John the Twenty-Third, even was calling for this international body to govern the the economies of, of mankind. Well, Francis has tied climate change to the economy. You know, I mean, these things are not two independent ideas. Uh, this is this is Francis's point that climate change is an attack on the poor. <clears throat> Climate change is caused by the rich who are producing wealth for themselves at the expense of all these other people. And the idea is we've got to cut back on this production to stop the climate change, which is actually impoverishing the world. So these ideas of climate change and the global capitalist economy that Francis hates so much uh, go hand in hand. And they all lead ultimately to the same thing. Yeah. You mentioned what that is, the, the reign of the Antichrist. That's the substitution yeah. of the Antichrist for Christ and the Antichrist religion for the true Catholic faith religion. And that's textbook Marxism too, just trying to create a class warfare between mm -hmm. the, the rich and the poor. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. All right, well, Father, true. I think we have time for one more email here. This is from a viewer who says, I have often heard the quote, Hate the sin, not the sinner, or alternately, hate the sin, love the sinner. Uh, even some traditional Catholics have this quote. So I, I, the Spirit says, I've always thought this was a Christian or a Protestant quote. So, Father, could you clear up the meaning of that? Is that actually a traditional Catholic quote, hate the sin, not the sinner? Well, understood correctly, it certainly can express the Catholic faith, right? Uh, our Lord says the second great commandment is to love thy neighbor as thyself. And uh, our Lord told the apostles at the Last Supper, he said, I, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then our Lord went from the Last Supper to suffer and die for us, give his life. So that can be understood uh, correctly. It can also be misinterpreted, and often it is. You, know? um, <clears throat> you might even say, hate the sin because you love the sinner. In the sense that, you know, if you have a loved one who is dying of pneumonia or a loved one who is dying of cancer or whatever, you hate the cancer, you know. Um, you want the cancer destroyed. 
because the cancer is, is destroying the life of your loved one. Well, so it is with the spiritual cancer of sin. Our Lord in the gospel likens it to leprosy, right? Um, and so it is not wrong to actually hate leprosy in the sense that you want to, you want to destroy the leprosy because the leprosy threatens to destroy the lives of those you love. Um, so um, the, the, the false interpretation, though, Tom, is that uh, uh, basically because you love the sinner, although you hate the sinner, you love the sinner, let the sinner get away with murder. <laughs> you know, um, in other words, stop opposing abortion, Stop opposing contraception. Stop opposing all these things. I mean, Francis basically is the poster child for this kind of thing. I hate the sin, love the sinner. And love the sinner means let the sinner basically understand the sinner and why he sins, and and uh, you know don't don't condemn him for that. Which Francis means like basically don't condemn the sin, but realize that the sinner is doing as well as he can. Isn't that just yeah. being merciful, though, Father? And that is uh, not being merciful. That is the exact opposite of mercy. Um, because, you know, well, in terms of the Catholic faith, that is the exact opposite of mercy. Let's put that way. That is the devil's mercy. <laughs> that is the devil's brand of mercy. Okay? In other words, this person <clears throat> is in the state of mortal sin. This person is going to go to hell. So leave him alone. Don't bother him because it'll just upset him. Let him go to hell. And that is the devil's ideal of mercy. The devil wishes everybody would be merciful in this way. Okay? Uh, but the devil is not merciful, we know. And um, Christ in, uh, tells us that we must love the sinner enough to try to save him. And, uh, you know, there are those who ask the question, well, do I have to make the effort to save other people's souls? And the answer is absolutely we do, yes. I mean, when our Lord commands, uh, uh, love one another as I have loved you, how could, how could one say, but I don't have to care about your soul? Especially those who are confirmed have a special obligation to be concerned about the souls of others and to be very uh, forthright in dealing with them, but forthright in a prudent way, not to make things worse, to make things better. But they can't simply just, you know, dismiss the idea that there are souls they might influence, they could influence to the true faith, to know the true God and his true Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the true teachings of our Lord in the Catholic faith and actually help that person find his way to the true faith and save his soul. We'll be responsible for those we simply didn't, made no effort to save. You know? I mean, it, it would be a, a very frightening I idea that we will someday face our Lord and be confronted with the souls that might have been saved had we accepted the graces and, and cooperated with the graces God was giving us for their benefit. But for whatever reason, whatever excuses we made, we just said, no, well, that's, that's not going to work, or, you know, I can't be bothered with that. Uh, there's a responsibility we have there. 
We have a responsibility, not only, well, how grave is the responsibility not to give bad example? Well, giving bad example is what we call scandal, right? And our Lord said to scandalize a little one, right? Someone who's innocent is so grave that a person would be, would have been better off if he'd been taken out of a boat and a millstone tied around his neck and thrown overboard. You know? That's pretty dramatic, right? But our Lord is saying he would have been better off if that had been done to him, that, that he scandalized one of these little ones because of the punishment that he will receive for giving scandal. But is the obligation of not giving bad example not also met by the obligation to give good example. And would they that obligation not be equivalent? Sure. You know what I mean? So each and every one of us does have, have an obligation to give that, that good example. That's what mercy is. And the good example would be to admonish the sinner. Admonish the sinner, one of the seven spiritual works of mercy. Right. Um, yes, we do have an obligation to do that. Father, how would you reconcile what you're saying with uh, a paraphrasing of St. Thomas Aquinas that, that the viewer uh, puts in the email here? She says that, uh, again, paraphrasing St. Thomas Aquinas, the sin and the sinner are not separated. Without the sinner, there is no sin. God does not send a sin to hell. He sends the sinner to hell. Mm -hmm. So how, how would you reconcile that, the sin and the sinner? They're not to be separated. Well, they can't be. Like the sin, the, the malice of the sin is in the will. And that's the person, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, what you want to do is you want to have the person change his will. You want him to change his mind. You want him to repent and reject the sin that he embraced. He can do that. In fact, human beings are the only form of life in the entire universe and even outside the entire universe, who can repent. We're the only ones. The angels can't repent. And, uh, you know, no other form of life can sin in this world because they don't have a soul, they don't have any use of reason, and they don't have a moral life, you know. But we do, and we can't escape it. The moral responsibility for the decision we make. And so what our Lord is saying is, is you see, we still have human nature it's wounded by sin but god made that nature and he still loves that i mean so god st still loves us when we're sinners and saint paul says that very clearly um and that is what motivated him to come now you might say okay well god knew what we could be what he created us to be and it was the love of that that brought him here in order to enable us to become uh, some people might say what, what he could love again. But the fact is, insofar as God created, whatever he created is good. The angelic nature is a good thing, whether it be the angelic nature of St. Michael the Archangel, of St. Gabriel the Archangel, of St. Raphael the Archangel, or of Lucifer. The nature that God created is good. This is something that might drive uh, fallen angels to distraction <clears throat> because they can't escape from that. You know, whatever God gave them is good. And uh, they might, if they, if they could, annihilate themselves out of 
you know, resentment against God for, you know, the, the, to, to undo what God had done. You know. But they can't. They don't have the power to do that. <laughs> so uh, when they say to hate the sin because you love the sinner, you're trying to deliver the, the sinner from the power of sin. You're trying to change his will. You're trying to reform him. You're trying to turn him uh, away from sin to love God. Right. Right. So what, what Saint, that doesn't contradict in any way what St. Thomas Aquinas says. Yes, in the end, there will be that condemnation. And um, God will hate the malice in the sin in the will of the sinner. And that's true. Okay. And that is why the sinner is condemned. Um, nonetheless, I mean, even in creating hell, God exercised mercy. We can do a whole program about that, how hell itself is merciful. Sure. A manifestation of God's mercy, but we probably shouldn't get into it right now. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I understand the person that's quoting this statement from St. Thomas Aquinas. But these two concepts do not contradict each other at all. They actually harmonize quite well. Um, you know, one, one cannot... Um, when, when our Lord sent his apostles into the world, okay, when at the ascension our Lord commanded them to go, he was sending them to sinners, right? Yeah. So the whole world, he said, go preach the gospel, baptize. And, I mean, they were all sinners. But God didn't send the apostles into the world because he hated all these people, because they were sinners, right? He didn't send the apostles to all these people because he hated the apostles <laughs> and wanted them to go and confront these sinners and die as martyrs. Our Lord wasn't motivated by, uh, you know, a hatred. He was, he was motivated by a genuine love. He came to seek that which was lost. Yes, exactly. To save that which was lost, that they would have life and have it more abundant. So, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's that, that love, the love that Christ manifested, that we have to have. Again, the new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and that is love. Sure. Yeah, that, that's an that interesting discussion. Divine love. To have Father A. Uh, it reminds me of a quote that I once read in a commentary on the Gospels where uh, the author said that justice without mercy is cruelty, but mm -hmm. mercy without justice is profusion. Too, too much. Mm -hmm. you know, just not real mercy. So those two have to kind of go together as two sides of the same coin. Well, you know, Almost. mercy is a term that is meaningless without justice. Right. Because merciless basically take mercy takes into consideration what is due to a person in justice, what they deserve. And it it relieves them of that, right? It absolves them of that, right? Mm -hmm. Delivers them from that. Some people will say, well, I would, I would ask the mercy of God, but I, I just don't deserve it. And you say, well, of course, that's why it's mercy. That's the whole point, right? And you talk about what you deserve, you're talking about justice. You have to start there, right? Mm -hmm. So unless you start with justice, there, there can be no such thing as mercy. It's meaningless, which is exactly what you're saying. You know, there, there are people who actually say, they, they have this idea that, well, God is a father, right? The father, the true father, right? And we baptized are his children, right? <clears throat> but just, you have the relationship as you have the relationship between a father and a newborn baby, okay? The father loves so much 
The baby doesn't love at all, has no concept of love, right? is incapable of loving anything, and doesn't have to. The baby doesn't have to love to be loved, because the father's love is so great, and of course the mother's love too. The mother's love is so great of a newborn baby that all of the love comes from the parents. None of the love comes from the child. And so the parents are basically supplying by their love whatever they could ever hope for in terms of love of that child. Right? And they say, well, therefore, we see God loves us so much that we don't need to love him. We don't need to obey him. We don't need to uh, serve him. He doesn't really require that because he loves us so much. He doesn't care whether we love him or not. Just like parents don't even think in terms of the, their baby loving them. It, 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 you know, they just, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. They still love that baby more than life itself. But they're making a horrible mistake and, and, and they misunderstand God's love entirely because God, the greatness of God's love does not absolve us of the obligation to love him. It actually intensifies the obligation all the more reason why we are bound to love him because he loves us so much. And so we have to learn to love him. And finally, our obligation is to love him with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our will and all of our strength, the first great commandment. So, you know, those who have the idea that God loves us so much, yeah, I don't have to love him at all. I can just do what I want, right? And he'll still love me anyway. Unconditional love, right? <laughs> no, God demands that we love him. We learn to love him, and we finally learn to love him completely. And that means that we're willing, well, you know, love means seeking the will of the beloved, taking seriously uh, what is serious to the beloved. And we know what is important to God. And for those who love God, that for them is, is what matters most to, to do God's will. We see that in our Lord. Of course, the Son of God. We see that in our Blessed Mother and all the saints. That love that enables them to put God's will first. Not just first, but that's everything. You know, that's that's their whole life is, is, is seeking and fulfilling God's will. Sure. So, um, you know, it, it all has to do with this, this question of... Uh, of the divine love and our obligations to respond to it. Yep. Well, Father, I think that's a beautiful note to end on tonight. So. Well, I'm so tired. Yeah. Anyway, but, thank uh, you. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate your time, and all of our viewers do as well. Oh, certainly, Tom. I I also wish all of our viewers, our very patient viewers, so, uh, great supportive viewers. And by the way, I should mention that. Thank you for your financial support. It's mm -hmm. a great help. Yeah. Um. And, but I also I thank you for your support of your letters and your prayers, too, and sending in the questions you have. I, I appreciate that. I know Tom does, too. I uh, would like to wish you, and I do wish you, a very blessed Christmas season. Remember now, the Christmas season lasts until February 2nd. Okay, the phony, worldly Christmas is has basically supplanted Advent, okay? And that is why... They're, they're struggling to keep Christ in Christmas.
because they have no Advent. They're celebrating Christmas, and they celebrate until the day that Christ is born. And at the Feast of the Nativity, that's it. They stop celebrating. And as I mentioned before, this is sort of like a mirror of what Christ says it'll be like the end of the world, when they'll be partying and celebrating, and then when Christ is returning, then it's, it's all over. The party's over, right? Yep. And so um, it's kind of mirrored in the way we're handling Christmas right now. But, you know, you, unless you celebrate Advent the way it's supposed to be, then you, you cannot really celebrate the birth of Christ and the true Christmas. The entire Christmas season lasts until February 2nd, the Feast of Candlemas or Purification. And so Catholics celebrate the birth of Christ right on through to February 2nd. It's one long celebration, okay? So I do encourage you to keep that tree up, keep the lights up, keep them turned on, and make it very clear to the world what Christmas really means, that Christ is born and now we have reason to celebrate because he's born, not stop celebrating because he's here, um, as though we've been caught. <laughs> they came and, came and caught us up to no good. Yeah. But... Um, but also, I ask your prayers for those who are ill. There's one little child, a six-year-old boy, uh, named Adam Dittar, who's very, very sick. He had leukemia. There are some remarkable indications of miraculous uh, graces. Well, all graces are miraculous. But, uh, there's, there's some remarkable signs in a turnaround in his health for the better. It's a result of prayer. I, I ask you all to pray for little Adam that he, um, well, there are precedents. I mean, if it takes a miracle, then God can do it, we know. And we'll ask our Lord and our Blessed Mother to provide this. Definitely. Thank you, Father. Oh, you're welcome, son. Thank you. Yep. Thanks to all you. of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.